KPCW News Time is 8.06. You're listening to the local news hour. This is Roger Goldman. Let's find out what's in store for our weather day. Kind of a slushy mess out there right now. We've got Thomas Geeboy on ABC4 to tell us whether it's going to get any better. Yeah, Roger, that's a uh, really good way to put it. A slushy mess to say the least, and that's just because we have basically gone from spring and winter is trying to make that comeback to the beehive state. And today it's going to feel more like it's supposed to for this time of year. So right now we're kind of sitting right around 30 degrees in Park City. We might see a daytime high climb to 35 degrees, but the temperature will stay rather steady throughout the day. And we'll be looking at a chance of scattered showers continuing through the day. Now, it's not one of those days where it's just going to be nonstop snow 100% of the time. But it is likely going to come in waves. And that potential will remain high around 80 to 90% from this morning through this afternoon before the chance gradually goes down tonight. But even by tonight, we won't be able to completely eliminate the chance. But with the temperature around 35 degrees in Park City. Not expecting any significant accumulations down in Park City itself, but as we go between today, tonight, and tomorrow, as we hold on to a good chance of snow showers through our Saturday, we could see an additional several inches plus for places like Park City Mountain and Deer Valley, where we've picked up around three to four inches of snow so far, so kind of already ahead of the curve right there. So hopefully we can add even more to it, especially after some of that low elevation snow that we saw melt over the last several days. So kind of much better and back in the right direction. So today, good chance of mainly snow showers across the Wasatch back. The temperatures cool down into the mid-20s tonight, so it will be colder tonight compared to what we're seeing out there this morning. Then for our Saturday, an 80% chance of snow. That best chance will be from the morning through the early stages of the afternoon before the chance of snow goes down Saturday night. But the daytime high tomorrow likely not climbing above freezing in Park City. With a daytime high of 29, maybe a great day to go up into the mountains and enjoy some of the fresh snow if you're going to be heading to one of the resorts. Then on Saturday night, the overnight low dropping to 7 degrees will transition to mostly cloudy skies. And then on Sunday, it's just going to be sunny and seasonal with a daytime high climbing to 34 degrees. But as quickly as we get a calm day on Sunday, we'll ramp things back up as we turn the page into early next week. The thing is, though, with the system coming in next week, it's going to be kind of like what we're seeing out there currently where the system's mainly coming in from the west, not the northwest, and it will bring some more of that atmospheric river moisture along with it. So daytime highs will come up just that little bit more. We should be right around 38 to 40 degrees both Monday and Tuesday. Still looking at mainly snow in Park City, but it could be more of that slushy mess. But, but by the time we get into Wednesday and Thursday, that's when those temperatures ease back down, mid-30s on Wednesday. And we'll see a daytime high around freezing on Thursday with snow being more likely than not each day from Monday through Thursday with the wet potential ramping back down from Friday into next weekend, Roger. Well, Puxatawney Phil tells us that spring is in the air. It doesn't sound like it at least this week. Well, not, not so much, but you never really want to trust a rodent with the weather, but uh, he's not technically wrong this year simply because it's a leap year. So instead of the spring equinox happening on the 20th or 21st of March, it happens on the 19th. So, so if you want the technicality there, you can always go with that. Well, there you have it. Thanks, Thomas. Have a good weekend. You too. Let's find out what all this snow means for the bank, all this slushy snow means for the backcountry. On the phone, I have Greg with the Utah Avalanche Center. Yeah, good morning. Um, it, is, it is some warm snow coming in, and that's actually a good thing. Um, we like when, when storms come in right side up, that is heavier, denser snow with uh, colder, lighter snow on top. Um, we, we, we want that new snow to bond well to the old snow surface, and that's what I'm expecting today. Um, we're going to be going with a moderate avalanche danger at the mid and upper elevations, and I think this new snow will be your biggest issue. Um, the, although winds have been pretty light, um, 
there isn't some new snow to blow around, so I expect that uh, you can find some sensitive soft slabs of new snow or wind-drifted snow, particularly at the upper elevations, although it could get down to the mid-elevations as well. Um, the best indication of that sensitivity is some signs of cracking in that new snow. Uh, also, you know, we've been talking about this persistent weak layer, and we had three big avalanches failing in that persistent weak layer this past week. Um, two were skier-triggered. One was on Sunday, one was on Tuesday, and a large natural avalanche on Monday. Uh, uh, yesterday, UAC forecasters, we visited um, the, the avalanche in Days Fork, and this was a real big one. It was up to seven feet thick in places. So it really keeps me on edge. Um, I, I think that mid and upper elevation northerly slopes that are steep, thinner snowpack, um, you, you still have a, a possibility of triggering one of these large avalanches. So definitely don't, don't let your guard down. Um, the good news is this new snow is giving us a great refresh. And I think you can avoid that terrain where there's a PWL and have some great riding um, with a moderate avalanche danger. So, yeah, you just heard the weather forecast, more snow on the way. Um, you know, a few more inches today we're expecting, a little bit of a break. Uh, Saturday, Sunday looks beautiful, and then yeah, just more snow beginning on Monday, uh, lasting probably into at least Thursday. So um, more snow on the way, and, uh, you know, for now, I, you know, moderate avalanche danger means you can get around and, and enjoy the snow. So, uh, as always, visit latest forecast, utahavalanchecenter.org. Well, thanks, and have a good weekend. Thank you so much. You too. Bye-bye. Coming up, we will be speaking with Francesca Klapchich. She's a woman who has sailed around the world. Then Councilman Bill Sirocco will stop by for the first time with a debrief from last night's city council meeting. And we're going to conclude our hour by speaking with Michelle Dawson. She's the executive director of the Best Friends Animal Shelter. With construction's delay at the future Amayali Resort in Midway, the first homes are now projected to open early this summer. KPCW's Grace Dorfler has the details. Amayali, the wellness-focused resort under development in Midway, was originally expected to open its first homes this month. Now, developer Chuck Heath estimates the first part of the resort will open in June, and the next stage of construction will begin. We'll have those first units available in June and July for phases two, three, and four, which are the hotel, the cottages, and the well-being spa. We're almost through design. He says a pool and clubhouse will be constructed this summer as well. Each unit is about 2,800 square feet with four bedrooms, four and a half baths, and a rooftop deck. Buyers can purchase from an eighth of a share to full ownership of those homes. Future construction will add 80 hotel rooms, cottages, and duplexes to the resort, according to plans presented to the Midway City Council. Heath says he wants Amayali to help people focus on healthy living. The resort is modeled after Deepak Chopra's seven pillars of wellness. We have geothermal uh, mineral waters on site. Uh, which have been used for healing since, we're told, the late 1800s. And then we're, we're literally eight, eight to ten minutes from the Mayflower exit to the back of Deer Valley. He says Amayali will also host workshops on wellness and health education for resort visitors. We don't want to just help them with their health for a week. We want to help them with their health for the whole year. The 30-acre development is under construction on a parcel just north of downtown Midway and Memorial Hill. Grace Dorfler, KPCW News. Summit County has owned 17 acres in Jeremy Ranch for years, but it really hasn't done anything with it. KPCW's Connor Thomas reports that that could soon change. The Klein Dolly property is named for the late auto salesman and philanthropist who previously owned it. Summit County purchased it in 2017, and planning staff say it's fit for almost any kind of development the community wants. 
That's what Director of Planning, Zoning and Design Peter Barnes told the County Council Wednesday. This type of gradient, this type of slope, there's, there's any form of development, any type of development you want to put on the site, it is possible to do. Planning staff got five different answers from council members on what should be done. Most thought some sort of housing would be appropriate. Other ideas include a park and coffee shop and residences could be above ground floor businesses. Wednesday's meeting was a brainstorming session, but private sector developers were in the audience. Historically, county planning staff have said Klein Dolly is a perfect spot for transit-oriented development. That could be affordable or workforce housing, or an improved transit center and park and ride. The parcel, which is on the southeast side of the Jeremy Ranch roundabout, is already close to the neighborhood's existing park and ride. There haven't been substantial public meetings about Klein Dolly since the 2017 purchase, but more meetings could be coming this year. The council's 2024 work plan includes putting out a request for proposals on the Klein Dolly property. Connor Thomas, KPCW News. Francesca Klapchich is not exactly what you call a weekend sailor. She literally won an around the world race and now she's planning even more adventures with 11th hour racing. She's here to tell us about it. Good morning Francesca and thanks for joining us. Good morning. Good morning everybody. Francesca, let's start with a bit of your background. How did you get into sailing and what, you know, how did you get to where you are? Well, <laughs> I know it's quite a different sport here in Park City. Uh, we're used to more like snow sports, but I started sailing in my hometown in Italy and my family was really passionate about boats and the water. And you know, one, one thing is like pulling the other and I end up just sailing a lot, kind of dividing myself between skiing in the weekends and sailing. And then of course, you know, you have to choose. So I choose sailing that. It seems to be probably the, the right decision at the moment. And, and what kind of a, a career track do you have in competitive sailing? I mean, what, do you start that as a teenager? And where did you, where, how did you progress? Yeah, I started as a teenager, so all like uh, youth, junior events. And then uh, um, I went to the Olympic Games in uh, 2012 in London, the Summer Olympics, just to specify, because in Park City we have a lot of Olympians. And then I went to the Olympics again in Rio 2016. So I started my career in the, you know, Olympic classes and then transitioned into offshore sailing, so really long distance sailing. And now I understand, what was the ocean race and when did you compete in it? Yeah, so the ocean race is the race around the world in a team configuration. So in the last edition, we were four sailors on board and one media, media crew that was just recording basically all, everything that was happening on board. And the ocean race is the race around the world um, in different legs. So we stop in some stopover, um, but we push really, really hard when we are at sea. Okay, so let's. I'm fascinated by what life is like in that kind of an adventure. Um, how many stops are there, and how much time do you get? How much downtime do you get on the stops? Yeah. So during the ocean race, normally you are on the ocean for at least two weeks or even more. And then the stopover, depending where you are, can go from two to three weeks. And that, oh. that takes, you know, the, is the time that the team need to check the boat, to make repairs, and for us as a crew to also recover. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to get a, get a sense of what life is like uh, on, during a race like this. There's four people on this craft, right? Yes. So and, and is it a 24-hour-a-day race when you're, when you're out in the ocean? Correct. There is non-stop. So we are just racing 24 hours. Uh, we are uh, doing shifts. So yeah. someone, you know, is resting for half an hour, an hour, or a little bit more if the conditions allowed. And then 
you know, we, we switch. Uh, I, I kind of call it like, you know, a, a quiet extreme camping on, on the ocean because we're eating freeze-dried, there is no heat on the boat, so even when it's really cold, we have, you know, like, uh, we need to just dress with more layers or uh, we don't really have showers, so either you wait for a nice uh, storm when you're close to the equator that is warm, or you basically don't shower for, for a few weeks. And, uh, you know, there are no really bathrooms, so it's, uh, it's quite of a wild, wild life. You get really close with your, with your friends on board. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, it's an amazing adventure. I'm going to res resist my temptation to inquire further as to how bathrooms are taken care of. But <laughs> let me just ask, I mean, so you go all these weeks with no, no warm food and, more importantly, no coffee. Well, actually, we do have coffee. So we can make hot water and we okay. have, you know, um, it's not like the m most amazing coffee that you can get. But it's definitely keep you awake and uh, it gives you a little bit of a... Uh, you know, a good moment in, in the mornings or when you need a little boost. Now, you're describing a world in which I, I guess I would have anticipated that you'd get, you know, four or five or six hours of sleep, but it doesn't, you know, in, in terms of shifts, but it doesn't sound like that at all. When the conditions allowed, we can get up to, you know, in a team configuration, we can get up to like four hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. that, that That's quite nice. But of course, the wind shifts, or we need to do maneuvers. So at that point, you know, everybody is called to be on deck and and work. Um, when you're sailing solo, so when, when you, you get are, to that, yeah, uh, it's uh, it's definitely a different story. And so, uh, two people in normal conditions or in, in calm conditions, two people can operate the equipment. I take it, but you need more people when when stuff starts to happen. Yeah, and also like performance-wise, you know, you you have other boats around you that you're competing against, so you want to make sure the maneuvers are fast, they are efficient, so <clears throat> more people on deck means that you can really push that maneuvers to the limit or you can push the sail changes to the limits and uh, you want to take the maximum advantage of it. So tell us about the route. Where did you go? Where did you start and where did you end? So we started in Spain, in Alicante, Spain, and then we went basically all the way down to Cape Town, South Africa, um, and then all the way around through the Southern Ocean. So we went um, um, eastbound, not westbound. <laughs> and then we stopped in Brazil to Rhode Island, uh, Newport, Rhode Island, get across in a transatlantic back to Europe, couple of short legs in Europe, and then we finished the event in uh, Genova, Italy. So that was, uh, that was quite special because it touched all the places that, you know, I'm really... Uh, personally attached to it. So, what's it cost to mount an operation like that? And do you get sponsors? How does that? How does the, how does the money work? Yeah, we are, you know, absolutely uh, privileged and lucky to have sponsors that can uh, can support a project like that. The building of the boat, of course, is it's uh, it's a big number, and uh, operating a team that goes around the world with containers with operation is also a big number. So, um, I you know I personally being super super lucky and privileged to be part of great teams that were able to operate at the maximum level of the sport. Well, let's move on to what you're going to do next. I mean, are, are you going to go to the next Olympics or are you going to, and, and tell us about a little bit about 11th hour. Yeah. So 11th hour racing and myself made a great partnership just a few days ago. It's been announced. So um, the end goal is to be at the starting line of the Vendée Globe in 2028. That is the race 
around the world solo, nonstop. So it's kind of going back to what the ocean race is. Uh, you're still going around the world on pretty much the same boats, the same type of boat, but it's in this time uh, I will be by myself and without stopping. So it will take definitely longer. <laughs> by yourself, without stopping, how are you supposed to operate a vessel like that 24 hours a day? Yeah, so we... Don't you have to sleep? <laughs> yes. Um, it's, uh, it's, again, it's really about like managing both the performance of the boat mm -hmm. and also managing yourself as a human being. So when you are by yourself, you normally are not always able to push the boat 100% of the ability the performance of the boat, but you need to be able to slow down in some moments. And at the same time, you need to get some rest. So uh, when there is a lot of commercial traffic or you have, you're really close to land or close to other boats, it's what we call like power naps. So you sleep for 10, 15 minutes <clears throat> and then uh, you're back, you know, on watch to check what's going on. There are other parts of the world where you can get couple of hours here and, here and there and the autopilot is uh, is driving the boat. So what kind of, uh, of electronics do you carry on the boat? Is, is it, a, I mean, I assume you have sophisticated communications gear, but you also have navigation gear. What, 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 what are you carrying? Yeah, we, we have navigation software. Uh, imagine a bit like, uh, you know, what we use in the car to, to navigate our roads, but way more sophisticated. We can add the, the weather forecast on it. Uh, we can add satellite Im images, so we can have a really big picture of what's going on weather-wise. Um, the algorithm, the software is kind of calculating what the best route will be. But then, of course, is you know the human factor. So you you at the end you decide what what to do. And uh, as I said before, the boat has an autopilot. So if we think about airplanes, uh, there are definitely moments where you can take manually control of the boat. <clears throat> but for most of the time, especially in a solo configuration, uh, the autopilot is on and you operate the software that control the pilot. And I assume you also have radios and satellite phones? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's coming up in 28, you say? Yes. What will happen between now and then? Do you train for this like you were training for a marathon where you do some test sales of, of, that, of that route or similar routes? Yeah, um, a little bit of both. Um, we are uh, definitely training physically because it's quite physically demanding, uh, but we also need a lot of experience on the water. So the first two years with this sponsorship with 11-hour racing, we are going to run a really high-performance uh, program with a different boat, with a different platform. But the end goal is just you know to gain experience, to gain miles on the water, and uh, with the potential in 2026, to get on an Imoca 60, that is the class of boat for, for the Vendée Globe. And then it's a mix of training and qualification races. So you need to qualify for, for, the, for the race. How many uh, teams will end up in the Vendée? In the, in the, uh, um, it's a close number. So they had to close the, the number to, for safety reason. Uh, so that many people want to be by themselves in a boat and <laughs> go around the world and, and not be able to sleep and not have hot coffee. Right? Is that crazy, yeah? <laughs> Um, so in 2024, actually this year, there will be one edition because there are uh, one edition every four years. Okay. Um, so there will be 35 boats on the starting line. Um, but 
as I said before, you need to qualify because there are way more uh, skippers and boats that want to race, but then they close the number just to make sure everybody's safe. And, and what is 11th Hour Racing? 11th Hour Racing is uh, an organization based in Newport, Rhode Island. Um, they do a lot of uh, philanthropic work on climate, on environment, on sustainability. Um, there's been years and years of work about ocean health and, of course, how, you know, ocean health impact uh, communities, people, and the maritime industry. And the work that, they, that we're starting right now is to um, amplify that work and include also, uh, you know, social impact work and a lot of work with, like, communities and get more access to the water, more access to the sport. Uh, get the sport more inclusive. Okay. Anything else you want to touch on before you sail off into the sunset? <laughs> no, it's been like a pleasure to be okay. able to share with, you know, the Park City community about a sport that maybe is not that known here. Um, do, do you ever take off and you know, impress everybody by going across the Jordan now faster than they can imagine? <laughs> not yet. We should, we should absolutely organize it for this summer. That would be great. Francesca Klapsuch, thanks for spending time with us. Thank you so much. We'll be right back after this. Park City Council held its regular meeting last night. Here with a debrief for the uh, is not Councilman Bill Sirocco, but it's Councilman Ryan Dickey. A little change up on us. Good morning, Ryan. <laughs> Good morning, Roger. Um, so, Ryan, um, liaison announcements, announcements were put out last night, weren't they? Uh, yes. Okay. This was on our consent agenda. What is their significance, and uh, are you happy with where you landed? <laughs> Good question. Uh, well, I have a little continuity in a lot of the things I'm working on, so so I'm, I'm happy where I am. Um, but then, we of course, we've had turnover, uh, losing uh, Becca and Max and having Bill and Ed come on, so they'll be diving into some new stuff. You know, the, the liaison role, uh, we, we have a lot of them. We appoint individual council members to work with uh, both our city staff and areas of policy like transportation and housing and to um, key sort of external, you know, nonprofits, folks like uh, Mountain Lands um, to um, sort of be uh, be a voice for um, you know, things that are happening on the council, um, give them feedback on council direction that's happened, the decisions we've made that would impact them, and be able to take things back to council that come from those groups that are important to us. The important thing that we always stress is, um, you know, they don't speak for the city. Um, they simply, you know, bring information to those folks and, and bring it back. We don't want individual council members going out and making policy on their own. And I, and I imagine that's somewhat time-consuming, isn't it? it? When you add it up, it's, it's time-consuming. Um, and and the, but a lot of that's the sort of the fun of the job. You know, we have our public meetings, and we have all five of us trying to get a word in to talk about our, our housing policy, for example. And so I work on housing. Um, and that, you know, but then you really get to go get in the trenches with our housing team and with our external stakeholders and really dig into the policy part of housing uh, in a meaningful way. So sometimes it's the, the really fun part of the job. Okay. Um, so you have housing. What else do you have? What's oh, gosh. Uh, so I have, um, I'm going to draw a blank. We've got housing. Of course, we're continu continuing to work on Deer Valley as the liaison. I'm going to be the lia liaison to our Main Street um, small area plan, which I'm really excited to work on. That's going to be, I think, impactful to the city. Um, uh, Arts Council, Mountain Lands, and I'm sure I'll offend someone else I'm working with, but uh, a great list of things to work on. You know, the park record ran a story the other day that characterized the roles of Ed and Bill Sirocco as being, quote, thrust into, end quote, the Deer Valley situation. It, 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 I, I, that didn't make a lot of sense to me. I thought that basically council's role was almost handing this thing off to planning now. I mean, what, what, what's your take on that? 
Well, there, there's there's two pieces to it. We've you know we we came to an agreement in principle with Deer Valley. So in the sense of being thrust into it, um, when we join council, we always uh, in a sense ad adopt decisions made before us that we could always um, countermand. But for the most part, we try to keep continuity going. The application itself will go to planning. Um, I, I think that's sometime in April, uh, a new plan will be submitted and will go before a planning commission. But also in parallel, as a council, we'll be negotiating that public-private partnership agreement with Deer Valley. So that's where council will continue to play uh, a real policy role. So in, in a sense, they're thrust into it. In a sense, they're not. And, an agreement in principle is one thing, but certainly there are a lot of details that are going to be Im important, especially related to governance, as we actually shape out the partnership. Who, who got that liaison gig? Uh, well, I'm, I'm lucky enough to continue working on that with the mayor. So, uh, you know, that, it's going to be a lot of detail and that's good. it's going to be a big lift, but I, I, I feel confident we're going to end up someplace great. Um, touching on Deer Valley, one of the agenda items last night dealt with the potential to ban nightly rentals in Bald Eagle, which I understand that the HOA already does that, but they're seeking to have the city sort of put a second imprimatur on it. Have I got that right? That, that's right, and th this is um, this is a, a tricky issue that can some, sometimes turn what you'd expect on its head with regard to our desire not to have our single-family neighborhoods overrun with um, nightly rentals. Um, in the case of uh, Bald Eagle Club, it's a it's a neighborhood that's actually adjacent to the resort. You know, these are places that, from a public policy perspective, you know, we don't really plan at a neighborhood uh, level or an H HOA level. We're thinking about the big picture. We want to manage nightly rental through our zoning to the extent possible. So there's a little bit of an absurdity to, to carve out a few streets in Upper Deer Valley surrounded by nightly rentals and somehow say, from a city perspective, that we have a policy interest that no nightly rentals exist there. Um, th there's been, th that's one of those things that council, you know, where council can countermand sort of history. Um, we've done that in some neighborhoods as a council, um, you know, before I joined um, to, to ban nightly rentals in small little neighborhoods within um, Park Meadows and, and Deer Valley. And we, we, we said, you know, that our role is to plan at this macro level. Uh, these HOAs have the ability to ban nightly rentals and do through their CCNRs, through a private contract. And we essentially just become an enforcement arm for a private contract. And we don't really see how that's in the city's interest. Okay. Um, Mark Twain famously said that no man is safe when the legislature is in session. <laughs> um, what are you looking at in the legislature? What are we worried about? Uh, well, we 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 uh, we start with optimism and uh, and and then go from there. Um, there's some interesting bills for the legislature. I mean, a, a couple of things we heard from um, from residents last night about the uh, the sort of combination of a couple um, bathroom bills that target um, the ability of uh, public buildings to. Um, I, I think specifically it's that um, folks have to use the bathroom that it corresponds to their um, sex at birth. Um, we heard from a couple of local residents about um, about how that impacts them and, and the way they access our facilities. We actually gave direction to our staff to um, do an audit of our buildings. Um, for we, we can always have gender neutral restrooms. So to see where we have um, we have the ability today and, and maybe not for folks to feel comfortable and safe using our restrooms. So we're always looking at um, rights issues um, separately. Uh, it really. You know, we, we watch, uh, there's these infrastructure districts that are established by the legislature, um, sort of these self-financing self, self -financing, uh, or 
self-assessing districts that are allowed, like the public infrastructure district. Um, the legislature's been toying around for a, 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 a sort of form of a developer improvement district that allows a developer to establish one of these um, tax increment, increment districts without the approval of the municipality. So in essence, to allow a developer to raise taxes in their development area. And um, together with our, um, our our partners in this, you know, League of Cities and Towns, we've, um, you know, always pushed back against that. Uh, we were always vigorously protecting local control. Um, another bill like that has sort of resurfaced, and so we're watching that one closely. Another bill like a local control bill or the, or the development? Another sort of form of the improvement district um, that, that allows de developers to do some things without uh, city uh, consent. Somewhat like the famous Walt Disney situation in Orlando? Uh, yeah, I, 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 it's sort of like that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know all the details of uh, Reedy Creek, but it's similar. I, I think that I think though, even in Reedy Creek, you had um, you had you had the consent of you know Osceola County and the lo local districts. That's sort of my neck of the woods, but similar. That's what I thought actually. Yeah, um, Ryan, I, there was there, there, is the appeals is the Planning Appeals Board a new body? The Appeals Board is a new body, and it's set up specifically to handle appeals of master plan developments and conditional use permits. So council, we took ourselves out of the appeal role, created a new independent uh, appeals board. Um, that's, you know, it's, these are administrative decisions, so um, they can be tricky for the legislative body to hear and really um, say we haven't responded at all to public clamor for a group of politicians. Um, so we thought that was the right direction. We had five applications to fill that board. Um, all of them were excellent, and we uh, we filled it with uh, three folks last night. I guess it was. I, I guess it struck me as a little unusual that it was a split vote on something like this. Can you sh shed a little light on wh wh where that came from um, in terms of like why there was disagreement on on some of the personnel? Sure. We you know we didn't. Um, you know one thing I'm I think that we're all con conscious and sort of careful of Roger is um, we have folks who come volunteer for boards and um, don't desire to be public figures and we really don't want to sort of chew through those folks in public and so um, you did you did see a split vote um, without a lot of debate I think um, folks made the case for for different people and 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 we and we and we took a vote is that what that means is that that means that two people wanted a different composition on of the board some different people yeah there okay. there were two folks who uh who were who were uh unanimous as we were went around the table and said you know sort of sort of who, who do you like best and um and then the there was a third candidate um that was split i think and they and they both brought uh di different strengths and um and and ultimately we all one had three one had two okay um was that done in public? I mean, did you guys talk about you know who the candidates were and who didn't have a chair when the music stopped? Uh, we did. We did that in public last okay. night. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to tell me who, who they were? What, 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 what or do you uh, remember? So uh, our our nominees are uh, Adam Strawn, Matthew Day, and Esteban Nunez, and um, uh, Elise Katz, who's um, you know a fantastic uh, member of our community too. She she came up a little bit short, little and short. I, I really hope we'll, uh, we'll we'll find another opportunity for her. I'm confident that we will. And what are the, so these people will hear appeals, mo again, it's mostly on conditional use permits. And is this going to be mostly a developer thing? I mean, this isn't going to be individual planning decisions, I assume. These will be appeals uh, of planning commission decisions of uh, conditional use permits and master plan development. So it could be um, something as small as a little conditional use in a neighborhood to a, um, a master plan development. So something like Deer Valley, mm -hmm. um, where, where they were the planning commission to deny that application and there were an appeal would actually go to this appeals board. 
So it's a it's a very important body, and it's uh, and it's a tricky one to serve on. Number one, you're only going to meet a few times a year, and you're going to step into things that are controversial and important. And, and intensively, and, and with people with intense interests. Yeah, right. From, from day Passion. one, you're, you're dealing with applicants who are already unhappy with the decision they've received from the Planning Commission. So it's, it's yeoman's work for these folks, and that's why we were looking for applicants and to select people who could really hit the ground running. And we actually felt that way and expressed it about all five applicants. Uh, another item on the agenda was a water rate study. What, what's that about? Yeah, so we, the, uh, the water departments come to us sort of well in advance of our budgeting process to say um, they forecast uh, a need for about $2 million more in revenue to cover their expense shortfall next year, which translates to, under our current structure, about a 10% increase in water rates, um, which is bound to not make anyone happy, including me. Um, so there are a few levers we can pull there. One, we did um, ask to do for a, a rate study. We've had both a rate study and a cost study. We, we just built a $140 million water treatment plant. Uh, we changed our rates, which are um, enormously complex to sort of bring in an expert who can do some benchmarking and look at our rate table. Um, we talked about, you know, currently the city doesn't pay for, for water, uh, so, or, or only li limited so in lim limited circumstances. So there was a question about should the city be paying for water? Now, when we shift the cost to the city, we're not, you know, shifting the cost of our residents entirely, but um, things like the golf course and the mark and the ice rink, those could be user fee driven. So um, rather than spread those costs just across the broad rate table, so we gave direction that we would like to see the city paying. Is that what happens now? Because the city doesn't pay, it's almost like a hidden tax on all the other water users. That's right. It's just blended right across yeah. the rate table. Yeah. Um, so we all share in all that water that gets put on the golf course today, you know, for, for better or worse. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, the council approved the purchase of a $240,000 condo in Prospect or t that will be used for transit employees. Um, is that something a little bit, un I, I, I know the city's done some of that in the past. Where does that fit in the overall plan for what you want to do with respect to affordable housing for employees? Yeah, so there, there's, big, there's big picture things we do on housing. The big developments we do where you, um, you have a big impact all at once. We, we're always looking for targeted opportunities. This was a unit and carriage house where we actually already had uh, transit employees living. And a, uh, a resident, um, a really well-intentioned resident uh, that was wanting to sell their property came to the city and said, I, I've, I've enjoyed having a workforce living here. I want those folks to stay in town, and I want to give you the... Um, right to bid on this first. So we got an appraisal. We paid for the unit at market rate. Um, but uh, our transit the, our transit uh, department will actually continue to use that for transit workers. So how many will be able to live in that kind of unit? It's a studio, oh, so okay. uh, one or two. Yeah. But it, we probably we expect probably seasonal employees. So it could change over a couple of times during the year, too. OK. Ryan, what have I forgotten to ask you about? Uh, well, there's some, uh, we talked about the appeals board, a couple of interesting things coming up. I wanted to mention World Cup this weekend. We have uh, increased transit to and from Richardson Flat during that event from 4 to 11. It's going to be, uh, I think, in fact, it already is a little nuts in town with World, Club, uh, World Cup, so we appreciate everybody's uh, patience. And then coming up on next Saturday, Park City Mountain's 60th anniversary celebration. Um, we're also increasing transit frequency. Folks coming in will again be looking for them to park at Richardson Flat, where, by the way, we're again seeing great success. So yeah. excited about that. Um, but that's going to be a, a, a fun event next Saturday at Park City. So ride transit and have fun. I think Richardson Flat is a demonstration of how common sense sometimes really works, which is, <laughs> you know, if you get something that is convenient where it goes straight to the resort, 
you know, people are going to use it. And I think it's, it's, really, it's really proven that this year. It, it really has, and paired with, you know, this is our second year running the shuttles and our first year with uh, direct-to-resort uh, service uh, for Deer Valley, too. So we've seen uh, increased ridership of that bus. And there was a thought when we did it that that wasn't the most convenient location, that we needed to do um, a different lot and different places. And we sort of said, if you, if you limit the parking through paid parking, if, there's, um, if folks carpool more, if there's actually just no place to park, all these day skiers that are coming in, that are, that, that's our traffic problem at peak is day visitors. Um, and there's nowhere to park in town or, or, or a place that isn't cheap, they'll park there. And, and then we were right, and they do. So it's, it's, been, a, it's been a big success. Ryan, anything else we need to touch on before you go? Uh, I think we hit it all, Roger. Thanks all for having me. All right, we're going to be back with some breaking news right after this. We have an update from KPCW's Christine Weller um, about a temporary <laughs> lockdown that happened at Park City High School this morning. Yes, there was a temporary lockdown in the Park City School District this morning around 8 a.m. It has now been cleared um, as of around 10, 15 minutes ago. Um, I spoke with the police. They said they had a third-party report of a suspicious incident, and officers responded to the incident and, as precaution, notified uh, nearby schools about it. There was a mention of a gun, but uh, they say it's not confirmed. There were no shots or anything like that. Um, but the incident has been cleared, and there's no longer any threat to the community. And thanks for giving us the update. Yep. You're welcome. All right. We'll be right back after this. After wildlife officers euthanized a mother mountain lion in a Park City neighborhood last week, an animal advocate shares ways to keep humans and wildlife safe. KPCW's Grace Darfler reports. The mountain lion was injured in the Division of Wildlife Resources' attempts to relocate her and her two cubs out of a Deer Valley backyard. The DWR used a firecracker to try to scare away the mountain lion family. It misfired and injured the mother's leg. She returned to the Solomere neighborhood days later, and officers euthanized her because of her injuries. The incident left some residents upset about the animal's death. John Ziegler, a member of the DWR's Central Regional Advisory Council, says humans and wildlife can usually coexist peacefully. He says a good relationship with animal neighbors starts with recognizing humans are the ones encroaching on wilderness and animals' longtime homes. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that in many of our neighborhoods, these animals are frequently seen. People should, I would hope, treat it as a privilege to see these wonderful animals as they travel through our communities. He says to avoid situations like what happened to the mountain lion mother, it's best for homeowners to be proactive. Ziegler says animals are usually looking for food and shelter, and if they can't find either in someone's backyard, they'll move on. Residents should avoid feeding wild animals and close off access to spaces like elevated decks where wildlife could seek shelter and raise their young. Wherever deer are located, it's going to get cougars' attention because that is one of their main prey. But people should not be feeding animals uh, because that will attract a variety of other animals that you may not intend to attract. However, he says elevated bird feeders are fine to use. Preventing animals from settling in the first place is best, but Ziegler says loud noises and bright lights can help deter unwanted animal neighbors. But he advises homeowners to watch and wait before getting involved. Another key element to our community dealing with these animals is patience. These animals will usually move on in a day or two. Mountain lions are shy and non-confrontational, and he says they don't want to interact with humans. He says the DWR works hard to protect wildlife, and balancing homeowners' concerns with animals' needs can be challenging for their team. You know, these animals are all around us. 
I hope that people can appreciate their beauty and majesty and allow them to coexist with us. Above all, he says it's important for residents to learn how to be good neighbors to wildlife in the region. Grace Dorfler, KPCW News. A new exhibit opened at the Swanner Preserve and Eco Center titled Snow, Tiny Crystals, Global Impact. KPCW's Leslie Thatcher has more. The preserve's exhibits director, Hunter Klingensmith, says the interactive exhibit is a hands-on opportunity to learn more about the nature and wonder of snow. Obviously, we depend pretty heavily on snow for not just our ecosystem here, but also our economy. Um, and so when I saw that this exhibit was available from the Oregon Museum of Science and Industries um, traveling exhibit service, I thought, wow, this is a perfect fit for Park City. We all love snow. And to get a chance to learn a little bit more about not only the science of it, but our cultural connections, and then also how we have to adapt and change based on what's happening with climate change. 13 pieces make up the exhibit, and Klingensmith says each of them have an interactive element. In the falling snow section, you learn about snow crystals and how they change with temperature and humidity and how they're formed. And there's a section where you get to read a story about how a snow crystal is formed, and then there are snow crystals you can actually match to that story. When you get the right one, it plays a little music and lights up, and so it's a really fun interactive experience. She hopes that those who see the exhibit leave realizing the broad impacts that snow has on our lives and our local ecosystem. We depend very heavily on snowpack here in Utah, and so my hope is that we get to learn a little bit more about snowpack and better understand snowpack so that people leave wanting to protect our watershed and our snowpack with some new fun information about snow to share with their friends and others. Tickets are $8 for adults, $5 for kids. If the cost is a barrier for visiting the exhibit, some free tickets are available by filling out a request form. You can find the link in the web version of this report at kpcw.org. There will also be free admission days on February 21st, March 22nd, and April 27th. In addition to the exhibit, there are several events and activities that go along with the snow theme in collaboration with the Park City Library, including a Winterfest Snowcraft activity on February 9th and a preschool story time on March 7th. A film about avalanche dogs will be screened on March 27th, and snow activity kits for students can also be borrowed from the Eco Center. The Eco Center is open Wednesday through Sunday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Leslie Thatcher, KPCW News. Park City's found a new director to lead its transportation department. KPCW's Parker Malatesta reports. Park City Municipal announced Thursday Tim Sanderson will be the new transportation director. Sanderson comes from Alberta, Canada, where he served as general manager of Lethbridge Transit. Throughout his career, he's served in various roles at several agencies, including in Nashville, Ann Arbor, and Des Moines. In a statement, Park City Mayor Nan Worrell highlighted Sanderson's experience managing transit in venues with large special events and seasonal fluctuations. The transportation director is charged with long-term planning, optimizing transit routes, parking management, finding solutions for peak traffic, and working with partners like High Valley Transit and the Utah Department of Transportation. The position at the city has been open since former director Matt Neely left in March 2023. Neely's tenure with the city was less than one year. Parker Malatesta, KPCW News. The Utah Department of Transportation plans to widen US 189 in Wasatch County. KPCW's Christine Weller reports community members share some mixed feelings at an open house Wednesday. The Wallsburg to Charleston project on US 189 aims to increase road capacity and make the stretch from Deer Creek State Park's Rainbow Bay area to State Route 113 safer. 
The project would expand the road from two lanes to four, requiring some hillside excavation. It would include separate travel lanes by Deer Creek Reservoir around a dangerous bend. Project manager Craig Hancock says the expansion would also require up to 15 feet from some private properties. We will be affecting people's properties, all strip takes, but we're only widening to the bare minimum that we need to to meet our standards. There are also plans to increase parking and access to Deer Creek State Park's Island Beach area. An underpass would be added to connect the east and west sides and the boat launch area would be expanded. The project would also include wildlife fencing. Charleston's town hall was crowded with locals learning about and providing feedback on the project Wednesday night. Residents seem to agree US-189 safety changes are needed, but don't agree with all aspects of the project. Tori Broughton has lived in the area for over a year. She says she was happy to see wildlife was considered, but said safety is still an issue. I think that there's going to continue to be traffic issues in and out of the beach access if they aren't able to come up with a better on-ramp, off-ramp type of situation. Doug Robison has lived in Charleston for two years and also has concerns about beach access. This current proposal is, is not as good as, as what we actually have today. As soon as you straighten out the road and give four lanes in that section, it's going to increase the speed of the traffic flow, which then makes it much more difficult to pull in and out of the park. Don Sant says he's a fan of the lane separation around a blind corner to reduce accidents. I've had people trying to turn their boats around right here because they missed their intersection back here to get off to the lake and they'll stop like it's just some country road and come on up right behind them at 60 miles an hour is a big 18-wheeler. However, Sant doesn't like that the project will impact private property. He has neighbors in Charleston who will have part of their property taken by the road expansion. Jonathan Wagstaff has lived in the Heber area for 47 years. He says he's in favor of the four-lane expansion, but says the project won't fit the needs of a growing Wasatch County. We feel like we have one shot to get this done and to do it right. And if we do it now, we can plan and prepare for that in the future and the growth. If we keep it the status quo, that road will remain there and be the same for the next 40 years, which will be underutilized, undermanaged. His submitted recommendations for UDOT include moving the road east about 120 feet to create more parking and adding an underpass and acceleration and deceleration lanes. However, UDOT said the recommendations are too expensive. Wagstaff said the project is already too pricey because it was budgeted five years ago and the costs of construction have tripled. The first phase of the project from Charleston to Deer Creek State Park has been funded and will cost $53 million. The second phase of the project from Deer Creek State Park to Rainbow Bay has not been funded but is expected to cost $97 million. The public comment period for the project is open until February 15th. Christine Weller, KPCW News. The Freestyle International Skiing World Cup will showcase Olympic athletes across three days at Deer Valley. KPCW's Parker Mile Tester reports it's the 26th year that the resort is hosting international competition. Last week at Waterville in New Hampshire, Canadian Mikael Kingsbury tied Swedish legend Engomar Stenmark, capturing 86 World Cup wins. At the Snowpark Lodge Wednesday, Kingsbury said he wants to keep the momentum on Deer Valley's champion run, a course he called very difficult. It's pretty special, especially standing at the top in the in duel, especially going uh, into the top four and you see that crowd. Even though I know they're not cheering for me, I hope some of you do, do, uh, do a little bit. But uh, yeah, it's pretty special, especially if you go against an American in the final. It's pretty cool. <laughs> 
Australian mogul skier Jakara Anthony said Deer Valley is special because she got her first World Cup start here years ago. I think this is our biggest crowd we get and the atmosphere with that night event is just phenomenal. Along with world-class international athletes, the World Cup will also include some of the U.S. ski team's top talent. Park City local and Deer Valley athlete Nick Page grew up attending the event under the lights and is now part of the number one ranked moguls team in the world. Every year reminds me of that, that feeling when I was the little seven-year-old running through the crowd, searching for autographs, trying to get pictures with, uh, with all my favorite skiers. And now I get to kind of play the other side of that coin where I have kids coming up to me. I get to take pictures with people in the crowd, so it's really, really special. Wyoming native Jalen Koff won the silver medal in freestyle moguls at the 2022 Beijing Games. Deer Valley is always such a special event to be a part of. It's one of the few places that we get to have so many friends and family and supporters at the bottom. And under the lights, it's just a magical experience. The U.S. moguls team also includes Park City locals Cole McDonald and Ali Masuga, the 2023 FIS Rookie of the Year. The moguls competition is Thursday with dual moguls Saturday. Reigning Olympic champion Chris Lillis will be one of the Americans competing in aerials Friday. If I'm speaking honestly, I've had rough results here at Deer Valley compared to other places, so I'm hoping to change that narrative for myself and become a part of that legacy of uh, jumping well here in Park City. Winter Vanecki, who earned her second individual World Cup win in aerials last month, had to leave Wednesday's press conference early to go to law school. And I think it's really important to keep up on our education because as much as we would all love to do these sports for the rest of our lives, our bodies and everything can't quite handle that. And so to have, you know, a career to look forward to after sport is something that I find really exciting. The World Cup at Deer Valley is free for the public. Athlete qualifications are in the afternoons with finals scheduled for 7.30 p.m. each day. Park City recommends parking at Richardson Flat and taking free bus service to the resort. For those who can't make it to Deer Valley this weekend, the World Cup competition will be streamed live on Outside Watch, Outside Magazine's streaming platform. World Cup events end Saturday night. Parker Malatesta, KPCW News. So the next winter storm will bring a wintry mix to the Wasatch back soon. Connor Thomas has what to expect. Total snow accumulations around Park City and Heber will be up to six inches Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. High elevation mountains could see a foot during that time. Meteorologist Thomas Geeboy says the snow will stay above 7,500 feet Thursday. Areas below that will see rain. The Utah Department of Transportation says drivers could see minor and intermittent travel impacts through Friday. Temps will drop steadily, though, through the week, increasing the chance for snow at lower elevations. Geeboy says there's a break in the action Sunday before more precipitation moves in. As the chance of snow will be increasing in the Wasatch back, by the time we get into Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday with what could be another atmospheric river event. Those airborne waterways were a main contributor to Utah's record-breaking winter last year. Connor Thomas, KPCW News. I want to remind you of the breaking news story that Christine Weller uh, reported on earlier today. There was a temporary lockdown at Park City High School. Uh, there was some indication or some mention of a gun, although the details are not at all clear. The, a, the lockdown has been lifted, uh, and there is no sort of current... Uh, apparent danger. Uh, we're going to try to learn more of the details about this story and we'll be reporting about it throughout the morning here on KPCW. You've been listening to the local news hour on KPCW.